The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Hello, welcome to One Hour at a Time. This is not Mary Woods. Mary is away. I am Mark Green. I'm a psychiatrist and addiction specialist. Today we have Sarah Allen Benton. Sarah is a licensed mental health counselor in a counseling center in a college in Boston. Um, she's leader of the Alcohol Skills Training Program, um, which works with people, um, college-age problem drinkers, and has made another variety of psychoeducational presentations, including mindful drinking, moderate drinking for the college student, and the truth about ecstasy. Sarah also blogs for Psychology Today. She's recently published the book Understanding the High-Functioning Alcoholic, um, and we're going to be talking quite a lot about that today. Hi, Sarah. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us. So tell us a little bit about the book, Understanding the High-Functioning Alcoholic. Why did you write the book? Well, I I wrote the book because the um, high-functioning alcoholic is a subtype of alcoholic that's just not often written about or researched. And in my own experience, I found that uh, when I was in the process of getting sober myself, I found there was minimal uh, information out there. And in fact, I hadn't heard that much about people who were able to maintain their outside life, show up for work, uh, show up for school, do well on the outside, but yet at the same time were alcoholic. And so what I really wanted to do was put together a book that would help to change the stereotype of the alcoholic being that homeless bum on the street that so many associate with the alcoholic and with alcoholism. And hopefully this book is just starting to chip away a little bit at that stereotype. You know, the front cover is a woman in a professional business suit, and that's not what we envision as the alcoholic, but the truth is... You you often hear about, um, oh, you can't help the alcoholic until they've reached the bottom. Mm -hmm. But what you're saying is, well, hold on, there's there's a whole different set of people who still feel that they're alcoholic, but aren't aren't destitute, um, but are still reaching some kind of um, crisis point in their lives. So did you find a lot of um, difficulty convincing others, or how did... Um, uh, 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 when you felt that you were getting into difficulty or, you know, that maybe you didn't get so much acceptance within um, the um, recovery community? Well, I think there was a little bit of all of that. And it's so often that people believe that alcoholics have to lose everything in order to get help or to even be alcoholic. And what I learned is that there's different types of bottoms. And for the high-functioning individual, 
their bottoms aren't necessarily something lost outside losses such as loss of their job or their home or their family not to say that that won't come down the line if they don't continue, if they continue drinking but that there are often emotional bottoms which are more what something that I had experienced or a sense of of realizing um, the pain that alcoholism is putting you in emotionally and not necessarily that your life is falling apart on the outside. That doesn't mean that it's not equally as painful. Uh, and so there were people in my life who were very surprised when I came out and admitted the fact that I was alcoholic because for all of my drinking, I, I didn't realize that I was. I knew I had some type of a problem, but I thought it was something fixable. And I'd never actually heard of people who were able to kind of keep things going in their lives and to succeed professionally and academically, but yet were still alcoholic. So it was, you know, there were definitely people around me who were also in denial, and I, I like to call that secondary denial, where, you know, I, of course, had denial around my situation, and many high-functioning individuals have a power, powerful sense of denial, but those around them have a huge sense of denial as well because these are people that are paying the bills and showing up for work. Right, right. Do you think it's a rare issue um, or um, do you think it's the case that there's actually a huge number of people who struggle um, with alcoholism but still manage to keep it together at some level so that there's a vested interest, you're saying in part, um, of others around them to um, keep things going too? I think it's a, a huge problem, and in fact, in 2007, the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism came out with a study in which they uh, said that there were five subtypes of alcoholics, and the functional subtype was one of them, and that constituted 20% of all alcoholics, according to this particular study. Only 9% were found to be that low-functioning, chronic alcoholic that really is what the stereotype sort of um, represents. And on top of it all, in the interviews I did for my book with addiction experts, there were some that estimated that up to 75% of alcoholics are high-functioning. The issue is that they're functioning, so they're not necessarily asking for help, and they're not always the people that are getting interventions or having family and friends confront them, and therefore they're still you know, going on with their active alcoholism. So tell me a little bit more about what the problem is that these high-functioning alcoholics are having. Well, the, the problem is that they are alcoholic just like every other type of alcoholic, and that's the piece that so many get almost fooled by because the facade is sort of tricking everyone in a sense. But they have a disease. They have a condition that's chronic, progressive, lifelong, and potentially fatal. So they're putting themselves at risk in terms of drinking and driving or if they have blackouts, which are memory lapses. Um, they may be engaging in risky behaviors while, you know, while they're drinking. Uh, there are, of course, health risks. But they're, on an emotional level, you know, many spouses of high-functioning alcoholics have contacted me um, through email or through my blog, and they've really expressed a sense of um, an emotional disconnect from that loved one and a sense of neglect from that particular high-functioning alcoholic who may be paying the bills but not, are not necessarily nurturing their family members. So there's definitely a lack of also learning how to cope with life and stress. I mean, if drinking is your only coping mechanism, then you're not really growing in any way. 
So when you think about that term, <coughs> excuse me, um, alcoholic, um, it's a difficult uh, term to define, and it's and it's not actually one of the definitions that you have in um, the current diagnostic criteria. But what are the key issues that you say um, that you see within that term alcoholic, which you would um, see within the high functioning alcoholic, just as other alcoholics? Well. The important thing is that when they start drinking, when they have one drink, it sets off this craving to have more alcohol. So oftentimes they're unable to control their intake when they start drinking. This, um, they're chasing that buzz, that initial feeling or sensation that they have when they start drinking. Uh, they are obsessing about alcohol. So even if they're not daily drinkers, and that's another misconception that all alcoholics are daily drinkers, some are not. Some are episodic binge drinkers, or they drink on the weekends at the end of the week after a long week of work. Once, you know, they may not be drinking during the week, but they're still thinking about it. They're fixated with it and obsessing about it. And when they do drink, they may have a personality change, like a Jekyll and Hyde type of shift in in their personality once they've had too much to drink. And maybe they've even set limits for themselves to try and cut back, and they're unable to adhere to those limits. That's a real key component of all of this is that when they try to set limits or control their drinking, if they do at all, that they're not able to adhere to those limits that they set for themselves, and they keep repeating these patterns over and over again. So, so it's that loss of control and the compulsivity and preoccupation part, um, which you see really affecting people's um, behavior and concentration and the ability to function in realms of their life. And you also mentioned before that emotional disconnect, how the erosion, you have this erosion of interpersonal relations and people get very much more caught up in the drinking and uh, more selfish in many regards. Um, and that's what brings family members to you through your blogs and often to um, Al-Anon and other treatment um, recovery programs. Exactly. So they're, you know, they may think that they're only affecting themselves, but other people are being affected by their drinking in, in subtle and, and sometimes very harmful ways. Um, so they're they're not necessarily growing or connecting in because really alcohol is their best friend and is their closest companion. And it's really hard to get in between uh, an alcoholic and their drinking. You know, I was wondering, is this, um, are there international or cultural differences which influence the development of high-functioning alcoholism versus this more stereotypical, perhaps early onset, um, severe um, rapid escalating alcoholism? Well, I think, I mean, genetics are a huge piece of, of um, developing alcoholism in the first place. So, you know, it, I think, um, I actually, the, the Surgeon General is like saying that uh, genetics account for 50% of developing alcoholism. So, of course, within certain cultures, alcoholism is more prevalent and also more socially acceptable. Mm-hmm. So, a lot of drinking culture, and, and I do believe that being becoming alcoholic is sort of that perfect storm of different factors that come together, so it's not just one reason. It's not just because you had, you know, an abusive childhood or just because your parent was alcoholic. There's a coming together of the genetics with that person's predisposition to mental illness or anxiety or depression 
or an impulsive personality and the culture in which they grew up. So that can also mean, as you were saying, you know, different um, different cultures around the world have different relationships to alcohol and alcohol has different meaning uh, to the social uh, scene in those areas and also, you know, different businesses and the different environments that people put themselves in within those countries. So there's really like a layering of sort of the family culture and then the um, nationality and then, or the, I'm sorry, the work environment and then even, you know, where they're living, what, what area and the culture of that area with drinking. Yeah, I was thinking about, I think it's changed a lot over the last few years, but up to... Ten years or so ago, you'd think of people in France, you know, with more older onset, um, loss of control and um, and compulsivity around their drinking, um, mainly because alcohol has just been more sneaking in um, mm. to, their, to their daily use instead of very early onset heavy use, which was more common. In America, I think it's changed a bit in Europe, and it ha- there has been a shift towards early onset binge drinking and heavy um, drinking now. So it has shifted over. But I wondered whether, within that kind of context, where you're just kind of drinking at lunch and a few at night, and it creeps up on you, you probably find more. You perhaps find some more high functioning alcoholics um, who appear to have to have it together, um, but really behind behind the scenes are um, tortured and tortured by their alcoholism. Definitely. And it's exactly what you were saying, that for some people it's a slower onset and it can come on strong or it can come on in a more subtle fashion. But it definitely has different ways of manifesting. There isn't just one way. So we're going to take a break, Sarah. Talk to you in a moment. listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure, what's up? Um, there's this girl I kind of like. Well, if there's one thing I know, it's women. Really? Well, they didn't call me velvet for nothing. I don't get it. Smooth. I was smooth. Oh. Anyway, it's easy. You just got to impress her. Show her how strong you are. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? I don't know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt, if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, Ugh! Try it. Ugh! Ugh! <laughs> See, there you go. And you should dress up. Start wearing a shirt and tie. I'll look like a dork. No, you'll look successful. Okay. And finally, you can start using my cologne. <laughs> the ladies love it, so don't be shy. Splash it on. Thanks, Dad. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To find out how you can adopt, please visit our website at adoptuskids.org or call 1-888-200-4005. 
A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Janine Marks, a 12-year-old, was fairly normal. She spent a lot of time online. One day, she met a new friend. The new friend had the same problems at home. They liked the same bands. They worried about the same subjects in school. They promised to keep each other's secrets. They wished they went to the same junior high. The new friend had good news. He said he was going to be in Janine's area one Saturday. He thought it would be amazing if they could just hang out, go to the mall. Janine agreed. The new friend didn't want parents messing this up. Janine showed up alone. So did her new friend, who wasn't in junior high, wasn't nice, and wasn't a 14-year-old boy. Every day, children are sexually solicited online. Help delete online predators. Call 1-800-THE-LOST or visit CyberTipLine.com to learn how to protect your kids' online life. A message from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and the Ad Council. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Hi, welcome back. One Hour at a Time. Mark Green. Standing in for Mary, we've got Sarah Allen Benton talking about understanding the high-functioning alcoholic, her new book. Sarah, um, tell me a little bit about what's different um, and special about a high-functioning alcoholic. Sure. So the high-functioning alcoholic still is having the alcoholic symptoms that I had mentioned earlier about the craving, the obsession, and personality change, and the repeated loss of control and uh, inability to control their drinking, but what's going on on the outside is what differs from, again, the stereotype and also what we commonly know the alcoholic to display. They're able to maintain their job, they're showing up for work, they're possibly providing for their family, doing well in school, obtaining degrees or or not, just, you know, or they're just really good workers showing up for work, hungover or not. And things are looking good on the outside. You know, they may have friendships, relationships, marriages, children, but at the same time they're drinking alcoholically. So there's that real compartmentalization that's going on for them in the sense that by day or they have one image that they're portraying out to the public and even to some of their, you know, acquaintances and friends, but they're also having this whole drinking life that's going on either in private or in the evenings or on the weekends. And over time, those either someone's going to crack and something in there is going to fall apart, the relationship, the job, um, or physical health, um, or I suppose people just are so consumed with the effort of trying to keep it together and maybe patched together by their social support circle and understanding job um, or misunderstanding job, um, that they're just being able to pull it together enough to... Um, that things aren't all falling apart? Exactly. So, again, dysfunctioning can go on for however many years, and mm. I think what can happen for someone is they either hit some type of a bottom in which 
they're emotionally not able to take what you're talking about, that effort and how much time it's consuming and maybe the guilt and shame around their behavior is starting to take a toll on them in many aspects of their life. Their health is deteriorating in some way or they lose relationships, marriages. You know, this can happen at any point along the way. But the piece of it that's important is that you can be high-functioning but hit a low bottom. So there can be a person who is a high-functioning alcoholic and then they, you know, hurt or kill someone in a drinking and driving accident. And that, you know, that's a real low bottom. And that's something that brings somebody to their knees in that sense. But the point is up until then they were, you know, quote-unquote functioning. And uh, so the bottom and the functioning piece are really separate. Yes, yes. Now, what are the, some of the characteristics which permit people to remain high-functioning alcoholics? Well, it's really interesting. You know, in the interviews that I did in my book uh, with sober, high-functioning alcoholics, they were able to reflect back on what it was that they were able, what it was about their personality that allowed them to maintain their functioning while drinking alcoholically. And they reported everything from, you know, uh, this need to prove themselves that was maybe embedded in their family, that their parents had high expectations out of them, um, or even internalized, like, pressure on themselves. And they often had good communication skills and outgoing and a gregarious personality. So in a sense, they were able to out-talk or overcompensate in some ways for um, what was going on for them in terms of their drinking. They were really able to function in survival mode. So sometimes, you know, they're exhausted or they are not getting good sleep because of their drinking or because they're staying out late. But they're still able to press through the next day and show up and do the work that they need to do. Good people skills, people-pleasing tendencies, high levels of physical energy. I mean, they're really overcompensating here and um, and spinning their wheels in many ways. Uh, they're often perfectionists, workaholics, uh, people with with meticulous work ethics, and uh, a you know a desire to su- succeed materially and to compete. And in a sense, that success on the outside for them subconsciously often excuses their drinking to them. You know, if things are, if I have this car, I have this house, you know, I have the white picket fence, then my drinking is not a problem. And it's really that lie that they're telling themselves. Mm -hmm. So, (coughs) excuse me. So I was wondering, do you see, you know, dual disorders, co-occurring psychiatric disorders, obviously a risk factor for earlier presentation and, and um, more difficulty getting out of um, addictions, in part because people have a lower ability to cope with stress and tend to relapse on alcohol and drugs with stress. And what you're describing is that somehow um, these high-functioning alcoholics either have lower levels of co-occurring disorders so that they... they under stress can manage to get up and get through the next day, or perhaps different. I was wondering, as you were talking about the perfectionism, whether you see different types of disorders, perhaps um, obsessive-compulsive disorders or eating disorders. Um, well, I've seen sort of across the board in in the interviews I did with people, they definitely, there were, when they got sober, um, certain conditions that came out, oftentimes anxiety was a huge one, and more obsessive tendencies. So not necessarily 
uh, OCD diagnostically, but for some, yes, but not for, but for some, just that tendency to be obsessive and, and to almost control things in that way, so to feel a sense of control if things are in order and doing well. So uh, there were definitely, I think, across the board of all alcoholics, like dual diagnosis is very, very common, but I'm, you know, I, I do think that they, these individuals were able to function even with, if they had a co-occurring condition, were able to function, and maybe the alcohol in a sense was serving to self-medicate in some way for them, so oftentimes, you know, they get sober and then they have to treat that um, co-occurring condition as well. So suddenly that anxiety shows itself. and Yes, um, it rears its ugly head, yes. And, um, oh, excuse me, um, do you tend to see other resilience factors perhaps around people's family support structures or work support structures um, which keep people buoyed up um, as and keep their functioning level up? Well, for some individuals, you know, if they're, if they are, um, successful financially, they were reporting that they were using this as leverage in a sense. So, for example, one particular person interviewed was a dentist, successful, had his own practice. So he was not really, not having to answer to anyone professionally. He was supporting a large family. And so when his family did confront him about his drinking, he pretty much did not um, go along with the treatment option because they were all so dependent on him that, in a sense, he was calling the shots. So for some people, they have kind of the upper hand in their family in their family system and professionally. If I, change, it, if I change my behaviors, then I'm not going to bring in that same amount of money or I can't leave my job to go to treatment because um, the children can't go to day camp. Or just an or just a refusal across the board because you know I'm not going to do this because you depend on me and I'm therefore I have the upper hand. For other people, their family system was enabling them in the sense that they were unaware of the depth of the problem. And I can personally attest to that. In my case, I knew that I had some type of an issue with alcohol, but I would have never classified it as alcoholism. And I think for many people who are not educated, and that's part of why, you know, I feel very strongly about having written this book and increasing awareness through my blog and through um, even doing, you know, radio shows and, and such, is that it's important for people to recognize alcoholism for what it is and not the stereotype. So if families believe that you have to be a homeless bum on the street to be alcoholic, then they're oftentimes justifying their wife or their husband or their loved ones drinking because in the high-functioning alcoholics case, things are looking good on the outside, so therefore they must not be alcoholic. But those two things are not mutually exclusive, success and alcoholism. You know, you can be both. Right. So you experienced and you've noticed in other people a resistance or a reluctance um, from family members to go along with some concern that, hey, I'm an alcoholic or I worry that I'm not handling this. And the family saying, no, 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 that's not you. That's what you see down on the street down there. You know, but that's not you. There's a reassurance perhaps because of stigma, perhaps because of shame 
um, and perhaps because of financial incentives. And that's something that you experienced, that kind of reluctance to acknowledge the difficulty? Yeah, and it's gone across the board. So for some of the sober high-functioning alcoholics interviewed, they would report that, yeah, when they came to terms with it, there were family members that were, because maybe there was someone else in the family that was a low-functioning alcoholic, they were always either comparing that person, you know, to the other family member or, like you were saying, you know, they're not, they're just not believing it because they just don't see that individual as being um alcoholic because they don't fit the stereotype and there is a sense of there is stigma and shame around it which is another reason why I you know have been doing the work I've been doing is to help people to feel pride in getting help for this condition and not shame uh, and that's you know really the important piece there's also the work environment which is huge I mean I it, it starts for some people in business school or law school for example um, there are certain work cultures that are very conducive for the high-functioning alcoholic. When, you know, everyone is going out after work for drinks on a daily basis or, you know, uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, they're going out for drinks with their colleagues and people are drinking heavily together. There's that group think that takes over and it starts to minimize the problem. In a sense, it allows that individual to feel that this is socially acceptable, therefore I don't have a problem. Everyone else around me is drinking this way. They all have families. They're professionals. They're doing well. What's the problem? And and so it really is like who they're surrounding themselves with and also what information do these individuals have about alcoholism and what, you know, the future consequences can be. So Sarah, we'll come back after a short break. Sure. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. This is an important programming note from the Voice America Women's Channel. The Catherine Zox Show is moving. Our new address is Voice America, and we will be heard on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, starting Wednesday, November 19th. All of the archives will still be available through Catherine's Boombox Player. Remember, tune in to the Catherine Zox Show on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, beginning on Wednesday, November 19th, on Voice America's flagship Voice America Channel. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Hello, this is Mark Green standing in for Mary. Um, so continuing is Sarah Allen Benton. Sarah, could you tell us a little bit about um, perhaps your own experience and how this illustrates some points about the high-end functioning alcoholic? Sure. Uh, 
Sure. So, you know, one of the unique aspects of, of my book is that I not only present research and interviews with sober alcoholics and addiction experts, but I also have my own story integrated at the end of each chapter, starting from the, my first experiences drinking at the age of 14. I have journal entries in there. And, you know, what happened for me was that I started drinking as a freshman in high school. Um, I come from a really loving and supportive family, and they were on the on the stricter side, but um, I started drinking because I wanted to. Um, I can't really point to a reason. And right from the beginning for me, I was a blackout drinker. And by that I mean that I would have memory lapses the next day. So I would be saying and doing things that I wouldn't recall. And it, that could lead to being passed out, but those are two separate um, ideas. And But at the same time, you know, I, I would drink in not that often in high school, you know, here and there, and it sort of got more frequent towards senior year. And But when I did drink, it was I was unable to control my intake. And at the same time, I was doing so well in school, and I was involved in a ton of extracurricular activities. And I went on to college, and the same thing went on for me, except I started drinking on a weekly basis and probably two to three times a week. And again, when I would drink, it was excessive. And I was um, behaving in ways that were um, against my own morals and values that I was raised with, but I would excuse it because I was drunk and I would not remember it. So therefore, to me, I felt a sense of detachment from that behavior. And along the way, I had several people, you know, maybe make comments to me and I, um, but I would talk my way out of, of these situations and I graduated with honors and I went on to, um, live in Los Angeles and pursue a career in television production and again I lived with a group of friends and I continued to not let go of my college drinking days and I think that's a huge key for people in their 20s when they're just like not surrendering or letting go of of that lifestyle and for me it was that work hard play hard mentality and I would work hard during the week but I would be you know practically could taste that margarita in my mouth as I drove home on Thursday evening from work and I was trying at that time to control my drinking at the age of 23 I decided it was just I was getting to that age where it was inappropriate that I was you know blocking out and I thought I was going to phase out of this type of drinking at once college ended and I was starting to see that I wasn't so for the that um, 23rd birthday I gave myself this gift of stopping drinking for six months and I was able to obtain that goal and I thought I fixed myself but when I started drinking again at the end of six months I was right back where I started and I ended up moving, um, doing sort of geographic cures. I moved to the East Coast, back to where I was from, um, to the Boston area, and I pursued a degree in counseling psychology. And I promised myself that I wouldn't drink, and I started drinking um, to excess. I did some moderation um, management counseling, and nothing could really help me. I tried everything you can imagine to try to control my drinking, counting drinks, switching types of drinks, water in between drinks, exercise before I went out. And this went on for four years of me trying to drink normally, and I couldn't. So at the age of 27, um, my bottom was really an emotional one where I felt such shame and guilt around my drinking and realized that I had this, you know, um, bright future ahead of me with a career that I was passionate about, but at the same time I felt as though I was playing my life forward going to possibly destroy it. And so I I realized I um, needed to get help, um, and I had friends confront me that last time that I drank. And so I did. I entered into a, a recovery program, and I also um, got individual therapy, 
which I recommend for everyone who's um, in the process of getting sober. And I, um, I found it very difficult to connect with some of the stories I heard at recovery program meetings because a lot of people get help when, for alcoholism when they've lost everything. And it's not too often that people get help before they've had a tragedy or had um, a lot of losses. And that's part of uh, the other reason why I wrote this book was really so other people could connect with a story that maybe wasn't so tragic and that was one of my silent suffering and not one that was just so obvious to the public and dramatic. Um, but I, you know, I really struggled. My denial was powerful, powerful. It For at least 11 months, I battled in my mind if I was alcoholic or not. And I finally, um, those voices subsided through the help of, you know, social support through the recovery program, through therapy, and through um, doing the work of recovery. And so at this point, I've been sober for over five years. But it's been very challenging. But at the same time, I accept I have this condition and that I need to continue to accept that and work on moving forward and um, bettering myself as a sober person. It's very interesting. As you look back, do you think that, I mean, you seem very fulfilled and have found a vocation um, in, in the sense of the word that we don't often get to use. You seem very committed to your work and um, it fits. But as you look back on your choices to leave L.A. and um, production, do you think that that was swayed and influenced in retrospect by the drinking? I do. I think what happened was when I stopped drinking for six months, uh, I didn't pursue any form of help or treatment, and I had no idea I was alcoholic. So I was not feeling well during that time, and I started to associate it with where I was living and the job that I was doing, and I decided that moving would fix me in a sense. So I think that my untreated alcoholism really propelled me to move. Uh, in search of, you know, feeling better in a sense, but I didn't realize that the problem was my alcohol and my alcoholism, and that was following me wherever I moved. And also you stressed the importance of some individual therapy, and earlier you used the phrase self-medicating, and it's also possible that you really made some personal discoveries through your recovery program and through your individual treatment, um, which loomed um, during that six months of sobriety and couldn't find a way of um, getting expressed um, and um, may have contributed to that feeling of dysphoria and dissatisfaction with your surroundings. Oh, definitely. I was very untreated and my mind was racing and I was just feeling in a way I'd never felt before in my entire life and I had not at all connected it to the drinking because I wasn't a daily drinker. And I therefore... You know, when I stopped drinking, it didn't occur to me there was a connection and there was almost a delay in that dysphoria and the way that I was feeling. It didn't happen right immediately. It was a little bit delayed and therefore I didn't connect it. But now I do. I, I, start, I seem to have connected the dots um, in retrospect, which has been really helpful. Well, it's a lifelong process, which uh, continues to get interesting. Yeah. Um, the, um, you also mentioned moderation management. It's a very interesting thing. We haven't had a... Um, I haven't had a guest speak exclusively about moderation management, but it's interesting that you really tried that for four years. And um, there was a recent publication, discuss uh, actually a few years ago now, discussing who's successful with moderation management. And um, it's often people who are high-functioning, but it's a, um, 
it's a retrospective kind of thing. Those who do well do well fairly quickly. After four years of playing with fire and torturing yourself, it can be, I suppose it's, a, it's almost by definition that if you're still doing that, you're an alcoholic who needs to go for abstinence. Yeah, well, there's the saying, if you have to control something, then it's out of control. But, uh, you know, I did moderation not for the whole four years. I did my own form of moderation for um, some of that time. But then I did attend therapy, individual therapy, with a, a moderation management specialist. And I did, in fact, interview someone, um, the executive director of moderation management, for my book. And I found it very interesting. Um, she had a lot of insights for me. But essentially, that program is targeted for problem drinkers. It's not targeted for alcoholics. And so what happens is a lot of times um, high, they have a very um, high-functioning population amongst them, but part of what happens is um, alcoholics may go there, and I think the statistic was that 33% of people who go into an abstinence-based program, such as Alcoholics Anonymous or Smart Recovery, may have started off in a moderation program and realized that they couldn't adhere to that moderation menu in a sense. So it's, it can be helpful for people to reach the conclusion that they're powerless over their drinking, but it isn't a solution and is not intended to be a solution for alcoholics. That's right. So you also mentioned the connection with others um, within the recovery, um, abstinence-based recovery um, fellowship. And I wondered what, if you could say a little bit more about that. You said it was kind of difficult to connect with people who had these terrible, dramatic stories. Did you feel a sense of estrangement, a sense of distance that you didn't quite fit in? Um, there were points where I felt afraid to almost tell my story and that, you know, someone was going to come up to me and say, you're not really an alcoholic. And I had, you know, these were all fancy things in my own mind because the truth is that my story was actually a lot worse than I ever thought it was. <laughs> and I, I think that we minimize things in our minds as alcoholics. So, um, what, you know, the, the difficulty for me was the comparing. And if, you know, anybody goes into, you know, there are several recovery programs that are international, um, free and there's Alcoholics Anonymous, Smart Recovery, Women for Sobriety, you know, any of these programs will, if you're going in and you compare yourself to somebody's story that they share and it's a lot worse than yours, then of course you're going to sort of compare yourself out. But what's really important is to try to connect with the main um, points of your story, which is, you know, what were some of these feelings that you were having around your drinking and what was going on for you when you were drinking, not so much how things were looking from the outside, which, again, is what the high-functioning alcoholic loves to do. So, you know, over time, I think in the beginning it was crucial. I did find and I did meet people that I connected with, but, you know, again, a majority of people who are in rehabs and recovery programs and all of that are people who have are lower functioning. So I was in the minority, and I think people who are high-functioning are sometimes in the minority in terms of, of seeking treatment. And as I've been sober for longer periods of time, I don't do that same thing. I feel as though I can connect with with any um, subtype of alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And, and I wondered as well um, whether, even though you yourself were concerned about feeling so different, whether you were welcomed um, in um, a warm way um, by other people in um, recovery, in the recovery world and fellowships, um, as they recognize the degree of your suffering and struggle. Oh, I was welcomed with open arms. Um, I was the one that was resistant. So it was a powerful, um, 
I, there's just so much help there out there for people that they don't even that for that alcoholics don't even realize is available that it, it blows your mind it's it's been an amazing experience for me to be welcomed even though I was going through my own struggle and my own um, debate in my own mind but eventually I surrendered to the process and I've been able to stay sober again it takes work and it takes effort, but there is the help out there if people put the effort forward and also keep an open mind. You know, I think that's the piece of it is you can have doubts, but you just have to keep moving forward. Absolutely. Well, let's come back after the break. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure. There's this girl I kind of like. Say no more. You just have to impress her. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? You know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, oh, there you go. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Ever seen a hornet, Shelly? No, ma'am. Well, you're five. What are you waiting for? They've built a nest outside your window. See? No. You will when you climb 15 feet up this ladder to get rid of them. Take this insecticide and broom <laughs> and send those stinging meanies packing. What if I fall? I could get hurt. Oh, you know about gravity already. You're so smart. Oh, go, 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 go. The hornets are waiting. Shoot, get away. Away with them, dear. Hornets hate high-pitched noises. Yeah, uh, try not to swallow too many. Get away! Knock that nest out of the park. You wouldn't treat your child like an adult, so why put them in adult seat belts? If they're under four foot nine, they need a booster seat. I can't see. Are they biting me? Oh, that's so cute. No, honey, hornets don't bite, silly. They sting. Ow. For more information, go to boosterseat.gov. This message brought to you by the Ad Council and the U.S. Department of Transportation. When I found out my jeans were made using child labor in sweatshops, I wrote a letter to the company saying, reconsider your labor practices. A few months later, I get a letter back saying, thanks for being a loyal customer, and they included a coupon for a 25% discount on their jeans. So I got smart, wrote letters every day to all the stores that carry the brand, asking them to stop supporting the companies who use child labor in sweatshops. And I just kept getting letters back thanking me for my concerns and more coupons for more discounts on more jeans. So I'm telling my friend about it and she flips out saying that between all the letters and coupons, some paper company cut down a small forest, driving off two indigenous tribes, hundreds of endangered animals, killing thousands of plant species, some of which may have contained vaccines for HIV, cancer, and syphilis. Meanwhile, the guys cutting down the trees are 13-year-old kids who work night and day for months just to save up enough money to buy a pair of jeans made by child labor in sweatshops. Saving the world isn't easy, but saving a life is. Just one pint of blood can save up to three lives. Visit bloodsaves.com to learn more. 
This public service announcement was brought to you by the Ad Council. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Hello, this is Mark Green standing in for Mary, who I hope is having a great vacation. Um, so... Sarah, at the end of your last seg- our last segment, you were just talking about the wealth of resources out there. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that, um, and then tell me, and then to talk a bit more about the role of the family in all of this. So let's just talk a bit about the resources out there, apart from your book. Sure. So you know, of course, there are the um, large recovery programs that are national and international, and they offer free meetings that are at this point in time online and in person. Um, Alcoholics Anonymous has like 105,000 groups and they have online meetings and um, regular in-person meetings and their website is aa.org and then there's Smart Recovery and they offer uh, a smaller amount of groups, 300 groups worldwide, but again, they're um, online and in person, and their uh, website is smartrecovery.org. And then there's Women for Sobriety, which is probably the smallest, and there's about 100 meetings worldwide specifically for females. And this is a more spiritually-based program. Smart Recovery is more cognitive, behaviorally-based. And their website, Women for Sobriety, is womenforsobriety.org. In addition, you know, there's uh, a great program that came out this year um, by the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism called Rethinking Drinking. And I have links to all of these on my website, which is um, highfunctioningalcoholic.com. But this program can help people to um, set limits for themselves and take a screening and sort of see where they fall in the continuum of drinking and, you know, what will work for them. And if they're able to adhere to some of the um, goal setting, then, you know, that's a good indicator that, that they may not need to abstain, but for those that are unable to, it's a, a definite flag that there's something um, deeper going on. I didn't so, know that outside. I'll check it out myself after the show. Yeah, it's, oh, it's it looks great. Uh, brand new. It's online right now. Yeah. Brand um, new. Um, but there's also, um, you know, I think it's important, we talked about individual therapy, for people to utilize, you know, even their primary care doctor in finding someone locally who um, is an addiction specialist or contacting a local hospital's addiction unit and really getting the name of addiction specialists in the area or maybe doing outpatient therapy through a local hospital. But it is definitely key to combine both a recovery program with individual therapy because most everyone has an outside issue. And those recovery programs are meant to treat alcoholism, not outside issues. So that's that's a definite important piece of it. And there's also resources for loved ones of alcoholics. Um, there's Al-Anon and Alatine for uh, loved ones of alcoholics and friends. And that link is on my website as well. And then there's Adult Children of Alcoholics, ACOA. Okay, so let's talk a bit about the family role in all of this because um, I think you know, the family is 
under-emphasized in recovery and a crucial part of um, helping people um, move forward in their recovery and make firmer support networks. Um, so what, how can families help and how can they make things worse, particularly for high-functioning alcoholics? Let's try and think of it. Yeah, well, this is a huge problem that the high-functioning alcoholic has is enablers because they're able to keep things looking okay on the outside. I mean, typically when people are, you know, you see the HBO show um, Intervention, the people that are getting interventions done are, are those who are not showing up for work, not providing for their family, not able to finish school. So those people who are able to do and keep the outside looking good are not necessarily getting confronted, which is doing them a great disservice. A huge piece of even my own story and the stories of, you know, those I interviewed is that there, were, there weren't always people making comments about the drinking. So in being what one thinks is a good loved one or supportive can often be enabling. So I highly recommend that if, you know, you have a loved one or a friend who you think is a high-functioning alcoholic or has a drinking problem, to confront them in, a, of course, a loving way, but in a way where you're speaking to how is that person's drinking affecting you? Because so often the alcoholic thinks that they're only affecting themselves. It's not nobody else is bothered nor or nobody else notices if, if there isn't anything being said. So I, I highly recommend talking about those effects. And even if the person doesn't stop drinking in that moment, you're planting a seed for the future. And these seeds accumulate. The more and more a person starts to realize that their drinking is affecting other people, the more they're apt to get help in the future. So, you know, I haven't seen the HBO show Intervention, but my, what I gather is um, that it talks quite a bit about this confrontation, and it is quite a confrontative model. Um, is that right? Yes. Yeah, and um, you used the word confronting, but you did qualify, you know, not in a harsh manner, because I think it is important to stress that um, confrontation or pushing against, um, you know, increasing the resistance of people um, when they're not quite ready to hear what, or, or def definitely not ready to hear what you have to say, um, can really drive people away and, and alienate and further and cause anger and resentment at a time when you're trying to foster support and love and concern. So that point that you stressed of saying how it's affecting um, me and how it feels to me and, it, and to really stress the concern that you have and point out a few aspects of what you're concerned about is crucial rather than to go, go for the gut um, early on in a very confrontative manner, which can often backfire. Exactly. So you want this person to feel that they can come to you in the future if they're not ready to deal with it now, that you're, you're willing and able to speak with them and that they're not going to just run away from you. Um, but again, it is about sort of putting, putting it back on you and how their drinking is affecting you and your concerns. So that's a really important piece. Um, and that can be from the emotional to the physical to the spiritual, however, you know, however you're being affected. Another piece of it is, is setting limits and boundaries. You know, for some people, it's, you know, they're, they're going out socially with somebody, be it a friend or a loved one, and they're very uncomfortable when this person drinks too much or is drinking around them because of the way that they're behaving. So, 
an example of a limit could be, you know, um, I feel really uncomfortable with how you behave when you're when you're drinking, and I um, I really would prefer if we when we spend time together that alcohol weren't involved. So. You know, that's just one example. But if the person starts to realize, oh, gosh, you know, do people don't want to be around me when I'm drinking, that's another seed that you're planting. Yeah. Uh, and Increasing some of the negative consequences feedback yes. that and providing another option. You know, I still want to be with you, but not if you're going to be like this. It's upsetting to me. Exactly. So, you know, and another piece of that is, you know, sometimes people – you know, down the line end up having to take um, a time out from that person or a break or space from them because the relationship is becoming too painful for the person who's not the alcoholic. And that's where I think that, like, a program such as Al-Anon or even going to a therapist as a loved one can be really helpful in in, in supporting you in setting these limits and boundaries in an appropriate manner and learning that balance between enabling and, you know, holding your ground. There, Alan Benton, you've been a great guest. Um, your book sounds fascinating, Understanding the High-Functioning Alcoholic, Professional Views and Personal Insights. Sounds like a really great book, and I'm going to go and get it myself. Um, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for addressing this topic and helping to increase awareness. I really appreciate it. Take care. appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.